Have you ever been embarrassed or ashamed to be associated with someone or something and you just wanted to distance yourself as far from that person or that thing as possible? Well, sometimes I'm actually embarrassed by others who name the name of Christ. Uh, Some people I'd rather not be identified or associated with, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Quite a number of years ago, during the Christmas season, I was in Radio Shack doing some uh, gift buying, and in the providence of God, it was just the clerk and myself and one other lady in Radio Shack. It's probably why they're out of business today. But there was just the, the three of us there, and I was looking on the shelves, and she was at the counter uh, buying her merchandise, and she began to witness to the clerk. But she was kind of gruff and a little surly and very loud and talking about a number of things and ended with, you know, you're on your way to hell. And uh, she just left. And the guy was just kind of taken aback. And I came up to the counter and he said to me, did you hear her? Can you believe that? And I said, well... I said, you know, uh, I don't exactly like the way that she said it, and I wouldn't say it in the same way that she did, but there was a lot that she said was true. And he said, like what? What an opportunity. So I got to talk to him for about 10 to 15 minutes on what is true about the gospel. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, and neither should we. Our theme this morning is that Paul is not to be ashamed or embarrassed of the gospel, and neither should we. The key verse is 116. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. I'm going to focus my attention on verse 16 and actually deal with verse 17 next week. I want to point out to you, first of all, that Paul states that he is not embarrassed or ashamed of the gospel. Verse 16 I am not ashamed of the gospel. What is meant by Paul saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel is that he is willing to publicly and openly identify with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not shun it. He does not run away from it. He does not avoid it. But rather, he is willing to identify publicly and openly with the gospel. To say that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel is putting it mildly. In fact, just the opposite was true. He was eager to preach the gospel. If you look at verse 15, what Paul says in verse 16 negatively, he says in verse 15 positively. He says in verse 15, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who also are in Rome. Paul wanted to come to Rome and preach the gospel. When we think about being ashamed or embarrassed of the gospel. As I said, Paul was not, and he was not ashamed of the gospel in a variety of ways. First of all, he was not sociologically embarrassed by the gospel. Tells us in verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. The Greeks were the cultural elite of the day. They would be the individuals that would be of a higher class, if you will. Paul was not embarrassed 
to take the gospel to the Greeks. Paul takes the gospel to cultural outcasts, foreigners, who were looked upon with disdain. If you notice in verse 14, he said, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. The word barbarian was a word to describe a foreigner. However, it often contained with it a pejorative or degrading connotation. It was said with a certain amount of disapproval. Perhaps the way in which we might talk about natives, primitive kinds of unlearned people that don't have much of a culture or a society. We might talk about bush people or third world nations or underdeveloped countries. Paul is saying he's not ashamed of the gospel, taking it to the Greeks or taking it to the barbarians. He had a cross-cultural understanding of the gospel. But not only was he not sociologically embarrassed by the gospel, he was not intellectually embarrassed or ashamed of the gospel either. For it tells us in verse 14 that he's under obligation both to Greeks, to barbarians, and now this, both to the wise and to the foolish. To the wise would include the philosophers. Paul was not ashamed to take the gospel to the highly educated and renowned individuals of his day. In Acts chapter 17, we have the uh, famous encounter of Paul on Mars Hill. Notice how this encounter is described. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Here was the group of philosophers, the learned of the day, sitting around, and discussing various theories and beliefs. The philosophers. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, taking the gospel to the wise. Nor was he embarrassed or ashamed to take it to the foolish. He didn't see anyone as being unworthy or beneath him to share the gospel. On the island of Malta, for example, in Acts chapter 28, there, uh, he is sharing the gospel with the natives. But what I want to focus on the morning is the reason why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Why wasn't Paul ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether he was talking to the most learned or the most uneducated, the most cultural elite or the person that had absolutely no standing and no fame. Why was he not ashamed 
of the gospel. What can we learn from that? Well, the reason that Paul is not embarrassed or ashamed of the gospel is because it is effectual resulting in salvation. It is effectual resulting in salvation. Notice verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Here's the reason. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And I want to really zero in on that statement that it is the power of God. I want you to first note what Paul does not say. I often think it's helpful in understanding what the scriptures say is to also understand what it does not say. So let's begin at noting what it does not say. He does not say, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the message of God for salvation. That's not what he says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's God's message of salvation. That's not what he says. Paul states, it, referring to the gospel, is the very power of God for salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel itself is God's power resulting in salvation. Now let me unpack that with a number of other references. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14, as Paul's talking about the necessity of sharing the gospel, says this, How then shall they call in him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? But have they not all obeyed the gospel? For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We know that faith is a gift. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not works, lest any man should boast. But that faith doesn't come out of thin air. That faith is mediated through the gospel. The way that God gives faith is through the hearing of the gospel. Or put it another way, it is the gospel itself that results in people believing. The gospel itself is what produces the results in people believing. For notice what it says in verse 16. For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone believes as a result of the power of God in salvation. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it can overcome cultural barriers. Believing is a result of God's power. Verse 16, to everyone who believes, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So what is the real significance of that? What, what is the practical application 
of not being ashamed and that reason for it. Paul is well aware of the cultural barriers that existed between Jew and Greek. He is quite familiar with the animosity that existed between the two groups. He's also very aware of the cultural barriers that existed to believing the gospel. Paul knew what he was up against if people were to come to faith. Paul was confident that the gospel was able to overcome the resistance to the gospel that he would encounter. He says this to the Jew first and to the, to the Greek. To the Jew first has historical and methodological significance. The gospel came to the Jews first in time as we think about the Old Testament and how the word of God spread. And the gospel comes to the Jew first in ministerial methodology. When entering a city, Paul would begin with sharing the gospel in synagogue and move out from there. But the main point is that the believing of Jew and Greek alike was a result of the Jew and the Greek receiving God's power that is to be found in the gospel. So let's look at another passage that unfolds this a little more extensively for us. If you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The theme statement is found in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now that is unpacked for us. If you look at verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what was to preach to save those who believe. Now here's the point. Paul was well aware of the sociological barriers that he was facing in presenting the gospel. Paul knew, Paul could identify in the culture what it was that people would reject to. What it was that would fly in the face of cultural norms. Of what people would want from the gospel that they do not receive. The sociological barriers, barriers are identified in verse 22 of chapter 1. For Jews demand signs. All right, The Jews are looking for objective verification of what is true. They're looking for some kind of empirical proof, as many today are looking for scientific evidence as a basis for what it is that they are going to believe. How can you prove that Jesus actually rose from the dead? What kind of evidence can you present? The Jews are seeking after some kind of empirical verification. The sociological barriers for the Greek are also given to us in verse 22. Greeks seek wisdom. 
The Greeks bear their acceptance of truth on the basis of human reason. Does what is being presented make sense? Is it rational? Is it credible? Is it, in that sense, believable? Can I get my head around that and really accept what is being said? It wasn't in keeping with the great ideas of the day, the great philosophers. What would Aristotle think of the gospel? What would Plato think of the gospel? The Greeks were concerned about their understanding of, of rational thought and reason. As many today want to judge the Bible based on what is acceptable to their understanding of reason. Is it reasonable to think that Jesus walked on water? Is it reasonable to think that he turned water into wine? Is the Bible filled with truth or myths? And oftentimes the answer to that is what seems reasonable to me? What is rational to me? What makes sense to me? What I can believe or not believe? We live in a society that really questions the veracity of God's word. So how does Paul go about addressing the sociological barriers of the day? Uh, barriers of the day? How, is God, how is Paul going to deal with the Jews who are seeking after a sign? And how is Paul going to tailor the gospel to the Greeks who are seeking after wisdom? How is he going to break down those barriers? How is he going to overcome that resistance? How is he going to make the gospel acceptable to these people? Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's folly to the Gentiles. He knows that. Okay? The Jews... It's a stumbling block. They can't get over the fact that, that Christ died. They don't expect the Messiah to die. That's a demonstration of weakness. They expected the Messiah to come and, and to deliver the nation. To the Jews, it's foolishness. I mean, excuse me. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. So why does Paul preach the gospel? Answer, the gospel overpowers cultural barriers in the elect. Notice verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Those who are called, the gospel is effectual in. Those whom God has chosen, the gospel will be effective in. The gospel itself will be self-authenticating. It will provide for them the wisdom and the power that they are looking for to satisfy their resistance to the gospel. In other words, they're given faith. There is an inseparable connection between the power of God and the gospel and the election, and election is clearly revealed in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5. Listen to these words. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. 
How in the world can anyone know who is chosen by God? There is no one whose forehead is displayed chosen by God on it. Paul says, I know that you have been chosen by God. How in the world does Paul know that? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I know that you're part of God's people because when you heard the gospel, it didn't just come to you as a word, but it came to you in power and full conviction. You were convinced of the truth of the gospel. That's how I know that you're a chosen. The gospel is able to overcome the barriers to belief. 1 Corinthians 1.25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Bottom line, Thomas Schreiner in the Baker exegetical commentary on the book of Romans says this and I quote, the proclamation of the gospel is so powerful that it affects salvation in those who believe, end quote. Let me say it again. The proclamation of the gospel is so powerful that it, the gospel, affects salvation in those who believe, end quote. In the book of Colossians, it says, let no man destroy you through philosophy and vain deceit. I submit to you today that the church has become deceived and captive to sociology. Trying to break down the sociological barriers that are seen as preventing people from coming to Christ. We have spent a great deal of time and have become excellent at exegeting our culture. That is identifying barriers in our culture to receiving the gospel. And they are myriad. Let me just give you a few examples. One barrier to the gospel is cherished pluralism. That idea that there is no one right idea or one right way of doing something, but that there are many ways, there are many different approaches to virtually anything in life. That stands in absolute contrast to Jesus saying, I am the way. I am the way. What is significant in that statement is when Jesus says, I am the way, not I am a way. Not, that's one avenue. If you want to believe in Jesus, that's fine. If you want to believe in Buddha, that's fine. If you want to believe in whatever it is you believe in, that's fine. That's good for you. This is good for me. This is what I believe. I'm happy you believe in whatever it is that you believe in. Our society rejects that there is one way. Another barrier to the gospel is the rejection of absolute truth. Rudy Giuliani has made the news lately in that statement of his, very famous now, truth isn't truth. You've heard that. I'm not picking on Rudy Giuliani this morning. That's the understanding of truth in our culture. 
He's expressing a normative view of truth in our culture. Another popular way of conveying the same idea is that we all have our own truth. We all have our own version of the truth. We all have our own perspective on life. And postmodernism says if you really want to get to the truth, you've got to bring everybody's perspective together. No one person has the truth. So if you want to know what happened in the Holocaust, you really have to hear it from the person who, who was incarcerated, a Corey Ten Boom, if you really want to understand the Holocaust. Someone else would say, if you really want to understand the Holocaust, you have to understand it from the Nazi guards' perspective and what he was going through and, and what was happening in his life and what it is to receive orders from a higher command. Someone else would say, you really want to understand the Holocaust. You have to see it from the liberator's perspective of the GIs that first come into that camp and all that they witness. And you really can't know about the Holocaust unless you gain all those different perspectives. Well, that might work for the Holocaust and there's a measure of truth in that but there's still such a thing as objective truth. Absolute truth, of which the antithesis is untruth. A lie, a falsehood, a deception. Jesus said, I am the truth. Nothing new under the sun. Pilate said to Jesus, we all know it, what is truth? Pilate says, who can know the truth? That's our society, who can know the truth? What do you, how do you convey the gospel to a society who doesn't hold to truth? Another cultural barrier is the spirit of tolerance. All points of view and all beliefs are to be celebrated and affirmed. All religious practices and beliefs are the same. Or if they're not the same, then at least celebrate and appreciate our differences. They're valuable, meaningful to the person who holds them. They have significance for that person. The person who has faith in these things, it's meaningful to them. And who are you to share your faith system with this other person's faith system? What makes your faith system better than theirs? What right have you? What audacity? What a dictatorial, what authoritarianism is it to declare this is what is right? Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus says all other religions don't make it. Anyone who fails to believe in Jesus is lost. No one comes to the Father but by me. How are you going to overcome the cultural barrier in our society that cherishes the idea that anyone's faith is going to result in their being in the presence of God? How can you make the gospel acceptable to that person? What do we need to do to overcome these barriers in our society? In short, that means our society sees the gospel as bigoted, narrow-minded, and foolish. 
So how are we going to overcome a gospel that by the very definition of what our society holds as valuable and true is bigoted, narrow-minded, and foolish? And more importantly, or just as important, what's going to keep you from being embarrassed of that gospel? Are you afraid to stand up because you know that if you start sharing your faith that you are going to appear as being bigoted and narrow-minded and foolish? Somebody might laugh at you. Somebody might get offended by you. Somebody might say that you're bigoted, self-absorbed, no concerns for others. The question is being re asked repeatedly in a myriad of books. How can we make the gospel more acceptable to our culture? How can I tweak the gospel so that people believe? In what ways do we need to change the gospel in order to become culturally relevant or acceptable? Paul is not ashamed of the gospel for it. The gospel is God's power to salvation. You don't have to change the gospel to make it acceptable to those whom it's to those whom he has called. You don't have to make the gospel acceptable to those in whom the Spirit of God is at work. The gospel itself is what calls a people to faith, and the gospel itself is what imparts the faith to believe it. Paul writes to Timothy and says this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Later in 2 Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But... The word of God is not bound. They can bind me, but they can't bind the word. Therefore, and listen very closely, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may attain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Why does Paul continue on? He says, I I." Endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain salvation. So that the elect will be saved. There are a lot of false understandings about election that need to be cleared up and dealt with. One of them is that people are going to be saved anyway. Why preach the gospel if they are elect? Answer, because the gospel is the means by which they're going to be saved. It's going to be the means by which they have the faith. 
Paul says, for the sake of the elect, I preach the gospel. And secondly, and so with that, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, if you believe in election, you lose your motivation for sharing your faith. Not for Paul. Not for Paul. For Paul, it was the motivation. Paul shared the gospel and was not embarrassed by it because he knew people would believe. <laughs> he knew people would respond to it. He knew it was effectual. It's God's power for salvation. So the conclusion this morning. First of all, I hope that you're not ashamed of the gospel. That you will publicly identify and share with the gospel in the same way that Paul did. To the culturally elite and to the down and outer. To the very, very highly educated and to the person who cannot read. You don't need a different gospel for the different groups. It's the same gospel that's taken to peoples around the world, to Greeks and to barbarians. The gospel is for all creatures, all classifications of people. Please turn with me in your Bibles to book of Revelation. Book of Revelation, starting with chapter 7, verse 9. Reading it from the ESV, probably a lot of you have memorized this in the King James. Reads close enough. Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Let's pause there for a moment. This is not an ideal. This is not a statement of, oh, I wish that someday there would be people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. I wish that, that somehow that there would be a, a movement of the Spirit of God or somehow we can come up with some kind of presentation that's going to be so effectual that it's going to reach around the world and, and touch every single group. This is not a statement of a desire or a wish. It's a statement of fact. That when we stand before God in eternity, there will be a people from every single tongue, tribe, people, nation, every culture, every language group, every level, stratus of society. There will be a people there. The gospel will be effectual. It's a done deal. It's going to happen. Now notice verse 10. And crying out 
with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The praise is that salvation comes from God. And God will save people through the gospel. He's to be praised. Not our intellect. Not our understanding of culture. Not our presentation. Not our wit. Not our whimsical spirit. Believe me, I I don't have anything wrong with some of that stuff as long as it doesn't change the gospel. As long as we're not believing that the gospel is ineffectual as it stands. As long as we aren't ashamed of what it is that we believe. Knowing that when I share the gospel, there are loads of people who aren't going to accept it. But there will be people that do. There will be people that do. When Paul was discouraged, God gave a revelation to Paul and said to Paul, I have many people in Corinth. Go to Corinth. I have many people there. God is saving a people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Every stratus of culture. Salvation belongs to the God who sits on the throne. And he is praised. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't back away from the gospel. Publicly identify with the gospel. Will some ridicule you? Yes. Will some think you're narrow-minded? Yes. Will some think you're bigoted? Yes. But some will be saved. That very same gospel is powerful to those who are called. Let us bear the gospel to the lost. Let's pray. Our Father, help us not to be ashamed of the gospel. Lord, we know that there is nothing in our culture that really affirms the truth of the gospel. It stands so against what is the normal belief system of those who don't know Christ. It, it flies in the face of human wisdom and understanding. Lord, it is such a put-off in our day. Lord, keep us from that temptation that is so crowding the church today to, to change the gospel, to quit talking about a hell, even believing that there is a hell. Quit talking about the fact that Jesus is the only way, but he is a way. Lord, keep us from changing and altering the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation. 
Lord, give us confidence, not in ourselves, not in our experience, not in our abilities to relate, but give ourselves confidence in you and your power and your desire to save. Oh God, strengthen us in a belief in the power of the gospel. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.